Oh, there we go. Okay, so, so we've been on this exploration of, of Paul's sort of journey with one of his very first churches. Um, why this is such a beautiful series and why I'm so excited to be in this series with us uh, this fall is this is, gives us sort of a, a raw, unique, kind of authentic first-hand account or picture of like what church is, like what it means to be church, uh, how we find hope as a church. This is Paul's sort of first exploration with a group of people who are exploring this for the very first time. Why this is so significant is because I think, like, some of us are, have been going to church our whole life. Some of us have not. Uh, and I just want to say, like, if that's you here this morning, and you're like, I don't know, I don't really fit in with church. I've never really quite known my place in church. I want to say, first off, like, I'm so glad that you're here. You're welcome here. This is a safe space. Part of the reason we actually started this church is for many of us, we found that we didn't quite fit in the church, and so we started our own. Um, that was part of our heart behind that. Um, but part of what Paul is doing in this letter to this church is he's getting them to, for the very first time, explore their identity as Christians, as newfound believers or followers of Jesus. He's getting them to, for the first time, explore what that actually means. And so why that's so significant for us as we carve our way through this series is as a new young church, I want us to ask this question, be asking this question constantly. What does it mean to be a church? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And so he's actually in this part of the letter in particular, he's going to tie in everything in uh, that he's spoken to them about in the first letter. He's going to summarize it. And a few short verses, he's going to get them to see this is why you are here. This is the hope that you've been called to. So join me and join one another in clinging to this hope. It's sort of his last uh, pronouncement to these people. This is who you are. This is what I want you to cling to as Christians. And so uh, in particular this morning, he's going to address what will sound like he's going to address. I just want to say this right off the bat. Like he's going to sound like he's addressing like how you guys are supposed to treat me. He's going to talk about leaders. He's going to say, esteem your leaders, like respect your leaders, like hold them in high regard, love them. But it's not actually uh, me that he's speaking about here. He's not speaking of the teacher. He never in this passage that we're in actually uses the word teacher or teaching. What he's going to refer to is everyone in the, in the language that he's using here this morning. So I just, like, I want to I preface that for a second uh, be, because it's very easy to feel like he's sort of singling out a few select group of people and saying, I want you guys to, like, respect that group of people, love that group of people, like, hold them in high regard. But as a matter of fact, he's actually going to be speaking to everyone within this community. And so what he's going to do is he's going to address really three things. He's going to say, I want you to love those who are serving— I want you to love those who are struggling, and I want you to be in tune with the work of God's Holy Spirit in your life. These three things in particular, he's not speaking to one person. Like I'm not going to go into all the Greek and the grammar um, with you guys this morning, but he's not speaking to one particular person. What he is speaking that has like three different jobs, what he's speaking to is a group of people that have three different functions. Love those who lead and serve. 
Don't stifle the Holy Spirit and love those who are struggling. This is Paul's like last plea to this church, who by the way was like in a very difficult season in their life. Like they were struggling to hold on. They were experiencing and enduring a certain amount of persecution. And this is Paul's like last little bit of before I go, these are the three things I want you to cling to so that you can get through this. Love those who lead in love. Love those who are struggling. And don't stifle the work of God's spirit in your life. So let me, let me read the text for us this morning and we'll get started. Um, we're going to be uh, starting in verse 12, but we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians 5. So the words will be behind me uh, on the screen, or if you want, you can look it up on your phone as well. Uh, starting in verse 12. Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them great respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy, encourage those who are timid, take tender care of those who are weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always do good to each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. Let me pray for us this morning real quickly and then we'll get started. Oh, Father, we love you. Um, as we explore this final piece of hope in Paul's letter, um, would you be with us? Um, Father, would you show us what it is that you want for us? Um, Father, we ask particularly for three things this morning. We ask for, for your spirit to show us how to love one another. We don't always do that well. We don't always know how to do that. So would you show us? Would you show us how to love those of us who are struggling? Those of us who may find ourselves uh, not feeling proud of where we are or who we are at these moments. Those of us who may feel gripped and, and, and in controlled by the shame that binds us or our sins or our addictions that take hold of us. Father, would you show us how to love one another? Would you show us how to love those who are struggling? Lastly, Spirit, would you be with us? Would your Spirit, Father, be near us? Would your presence surround us? Father, would you help us? We need you desperately. We love you. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so, so the first part of this uh, letter, he starts out, Dear brothers and sisters, honor those who are leaders in the Lord's Work. So, so, so we've been exploring this idea uh, that Paul has of, of what is it to be a Christian, and he starts his letter in Thessalonian by defining it as you participate in the reality of God. And for Paul, participating in the reality of God is what, what he means by that. So notice he says in verse 1, uh, those who are in the Lord's work. Paul uses this word in as the most common way to describe a Christian, someone who is in Christ. And what Paul is doing there is he's describing the Trinitarian relationship. 
So, so the, the church always worships, right, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, These, this holy trinity. Maybe you've heard that term before. Um, but the question I want to, like, ask is, like, why is that significant? Like, why do we acknowledge and worship God as three persons, worshiped as one God? Why is that significant? For Paul, it is the foundation of how he laid the theology for his churches, it is the foundation for why they existed. And this was basically his, his summary. If I could summarize it quickly and briefly for you, it was this. God exists in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Spirit flows out from love from both of them. This, this perfect trinity exists in loving union with one another. And so when Paul uses that word in, in Christ or in the Lord, what he is doing is he's trying to get them to understand understand you are now a participant in this holy relationship. You are united with Christ and Christ is one with the Father. Like you now participate in this Trinitarian relationship of love. John will describe this Trinitarian relationship. The essence of it is love. Three persons worshiped as one God, one essence. That essence, 1 John 4, is love. They exist in a loving relationship with one another, a joyful relationship with one another. And so what Paul wants to do is he wants his churches to begin to see this is like, this is the reality that you now exist in. It is something that you now live in. And so when he says, uh, dear brothers and sisters, honors those who are leaders in the Lord's work, what he's doing is he's trying to get them to see that this group of people who are leading, what they're doing is they're actively participating in the nature of who God is, this relational God of love. And so the word that Paul uses for leaders here, like he's soft peddling. He's not referring to like ordained uh, official positions. So he's not referring to me because this would feel kind of weird if I got up and was like, so how well have y'all loved me this week? That's not actually what he's driving at here. Here's what, who he's driving towards. He is driving towards people who are serving the church in love. These for Paul is how he defines leadership. It's how he defines health. It's how he defines like what he wants for his churches. He says, look at those who are serving and esteem them, respect them, encourage them. Look at those who lead with an example of love, who serve. So Paul, and this is very much how we've actually uh, picked leaders in our church as well. We've always tried to do this from the very beginning. But he does not pick leaders based on their, uh, like their, their charisma or, or their like, personalities or even like their leadership giftings. Although he does look at that. I'm not saying that's not important. But for Paul primarily, when he looks or speaks of leaders in the church, he's looking at how they function how they operate in love. Then they usually receive positions of leadership, not the other way around. He doesn't appoint them first and then say, here's your job. What he does is he looks at those who are already doing the job without the recognition, and those are the, usually the ones that Paul then appoints or picks for leadership positions. You see what Paul's doing is he's building a church, but he's building it from the ground up. He's looking at those among them who are sacrificially leading in love, serving in love. And what he's wanting to do is he's wanting to ensure that they are not overlooked or devalued. Okay, so, so, so this is something that I think, particularly in the West, at least Protestant, evangelicals in particular, has really 
missed about the spirit of what Paul like started his churches as as in the West in particular like we get so wrapped up in celebrity like pastors celebrity like bells and whistles like things that are exciting about church but Paul's laying this foundation and what he's saying is the thing that makes me most thrilled about you guys the thing that I want you most realizing is there are people who serve and lead in love quite like they're not something that you might necessarily notice at first but these are the ones that I want you paying attention to these are the ones I want you following and esteeming and respecting and taking care of because they are the foundation of the hope that you have Okay, so um, one of the ways that Paul, um, you may not realize this, doctrine is very important to Paul. He writes, like, he's our primary person that we get most of our Christian doctrine from, believe it or not. Like, his letters, particularly Romans, uh, Galatians, uh, and some of his other letters, like, are the foundation for how we get Christian doctrine. But Paul's primary way that he saw, like, laying foundation for his churches was not necessarily through his teaching. Again, I'm not going to say that that was, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. It was important and critical. But for Paul, the primary way that he saw himself establishing the hope of Jesus to these groups of Christians who were in desperate need of hope was through this life lived through love, the way that he loved and cared for them. This is why he would say things to his churches. I am like a drink offering. I am pouring myself out to you. And the primary way that he sees the church growing and health and growing in leadership is through imitation of those who are imitating Christ. So I want to go back to, and I know I'm being a little theological this morning, but I want us to try and grab this a little bit because I think there's actual real spiritual health available to us as we begin to see this. I'm going to push us a little bit this morning. Um, I'm both feeling a little anxious about it, but also I've spent a lot of time praying about it and wrestling it with this week. And I really want us to see this. For Paul, he sees himself as someone who's united with Christ. Here's what that means. The living spirit of Christ now resides in him. It works in him. It's teaching him. He, the spirit of Christ is teaching him how to love as Christ loves, how to be just as Christ is just, how to be uh, like forgiving as Christ is forgiving, how to be merciful and compassionate. Like it is showing, it is taking his heart and transforming it to be like the heart of God. And so when Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. So, so 1 Corinthians 4, uh, 14 through 17, Paul says, I am writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. And, and here you say, for in Christ, I am in Christ, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. 1 Corinthians 11, 1 imitate me as I imitate Christ. You see, for Paul, he lives in this reality that the God of love has grabbed hold of his heart and has turned it upside down. He had a heart of stone and it's given him a heart of flesh. And what happens in these moments is God begins to teach us how to love as he is loved, to be just as he is just, to care as he cares, to be merciful as he is merciful, we begin to reflect the nature and the character of God. This is very much how Paul sees himself. So one of the questions that I get sometimes when people, we talk about Paul is like, somebody say like, that sounds kind of arrogant. He's like, I got it. Like, you guys look how good I am. 
like y'all copy me, figure like figure me out so you can figure God out. Uh, and I think that that's misreading what Paul's real heart here. Um, so whenever we read Paul, one of the things that I want us to do or have to like be mindful of is that Paul never writes any of his letters from positions of power. So we kind of picture Paul maybe the way that we picture uh, a lot of the Christian like leaders that we see in our, our world today, like having a lot of political influence or like pow- like powerful, correct, you know, charismatic, like big churches, maybe like a comfortable salary. But Paul never had any of those. He was always writing from a position of vulnerability. He was almost always writing from a position of someone had recently tried to kill him, was currently trying to kill him, was plotting to kill him. He might have been writing from prison. Like Paul never writes from positions of authority. And the sense of like, he never writes from positions of power. He never had that. He never has that in any of his letters. In fact, I've been reading an interesting book on Paul, but one of the things that um, we can miss about him very easily, and the reason I'm going into this is because I want us to help, I want us to see Paul's heart here, is that by, by modern standards, this, this commentator writes, like we would view Paul largely unsuccessful. Like is nothing to like write home about. So, so we have, as far as we know about Paul, he starts a bunch of churches, Thessalonians being one of them, kind of early in his life. And then we have a bunch of letters kind of written later in his life. But there's about a 14-year gap where we have nothing. We don't hear from Paul. He kind of just seems to like almost disappear from the church scene. That doesn't mean that he was gone. But here, here's the conclusion, and I think this person was right when he writes this because he, he, he spends a lot of time um, writing about Paul in ways that are really helpful. But he says, I think... Largely, for those 14 years, Paul experienced an enormous amount of discouragement. He'd stopped doing, he, like, he may have planted some other churches, but most likely like, was experiencing a lot of discouragement, a lot of failures, a lot of attempts to try, a lot of uh, imprisonments, like a lot of friction in his work. 14 years, we just are, are disappeared from his life, and we don't really know what happened other than his conclusion is, I think most likely there wasn't a whole lot of remarkable things going on. Paul had started these early churches. He had started calling, like begging these Christians to like love one another. And then like very soon after that, like other groups of people started coming in saying, no, 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 Paul's got it all wrong. It's not just love that you need to be doing. Like you need to be practicing certain kinds of religious codes and morals and like kind of throwing in their own ethics and values into the system. And Paul keeps going back and saying, listen to me, like you are now living in Christ as this God of love. There is no greater privilege, no more sacred privilege all the world and yet all these other groups of people keep trying to convince you it's not enough you need more and you don't and so most likely Paul spent probably over a decade of his life struggling to get people around him to to grasp this like to hold on to this and then we see Paul again and so that's what I'm not saying is like Paul was a tragic story but I do think there's something about when Christ appears to Paul and says I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name we have to remember when Paul writes these things, he's writing from this often this place of pure vulnerability, like out of pure, desperate sometimes need for God and his redeeming spirit. And so Paul sees when he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ, what Paul is often doing is from this place of real vulnerability and brokenness saying I am begging you to live into this reality you know Jesus now you are a part of this loving relationship that is God so live into this with one another love one another you see see why I want to I want to spend some time on this um 
is Paul, Paul sees this, this like vulnerable kind of self-emptying love as the definition of what it means to be a Christian. So we often think of, um, we often think of a story where Jesus washes the disciples' feet as some, like this kind of beautiful romantic story. Uh, and that's some, that's actually, like it's, it is beautiful. Okay, I'm not gonna, like please again, like don't hear me say what I'm not, you know, I'm not saying. It is beautiful. But the reality is like when that happened, it made most of the disciples uncomfortable with it. Because this wasn't how you lead. Like if Jesus was the Messiah and you were a Christian, like talking to other people about your Jesus, and you mentioned he washed our feet, like that would feel a little like unremarkable. It wouldn't be the thing that like you're trying to convince them. So like you should come follow me, by the way, everybody wants to kill us and we might lose all of our money. And they're asking you like, why would I follow you? And say, because I follow a Messiah who washes feet. So it's a little bit like, so, so as we've grown, like, there, there, but like when, we were, when we were launching, right, those of you who were on the original launch team that I suckered into this, uh, like part of, part of what I did was kind of share vision for what, like, what I wanted, what we were like hoping to do with the church. Um, but like it would be almost as if like your selling point, like as we've grown, people have said like there's I have friends that I, I think would love Restore, or, like be a part of Restore. It would, it would be a little bit like, and I'm not a perfect analogy, but I'm trying to help us grab what Paul, the spirit of what Paul's saying here. It's a little bit like if you said like, we started this new church and, and the pastor is really good at cleaning the restrooms when they're a mess. Like people be like, that's nice. Sounds like a sweet guy, but like why... What makes that a good, like, what makes that person a good leader? And what Paul is saying is it's precisely the ones that are, like, without complaint, that are sort of pouring themselves out, the ones that are really good at cleaning the restrooms and doing the things that no one else wants to do. Those are the leaders I want you to love and esteem and respect and care for them as they are doing for you. We're accustomed to love being kind of fancy uh, and like Instagram worthy. But most of the ways that I think Paul is like encouraging his churches to love one another, the most of the way, many of the ways that Jesus loved us weren't like these proud moments that they would have been posting on Instagram. It would have been very, very difficult if you were a Christian in the first century to convince others that this was a movement. And it's not your job to convince, but like as you're talking about what Jesus is to you, like when you get to the point of him washing the disciples' feet or dying on the cross, this is part of the moment where that's like, those things are either shameful or unremarkable. Why would I follow this Jesus? And so one of the reasons that Paul is pushing on this is because we think there was probably some tension in the community. There were other people that were beginning to come in with kind of charismatic gifts kind of, or like giftings and leadership, and people were kind of drawn to that. And Paul was saying, you're, in, you're, in, you're at risk for missing the spirit of, of all that we're doing here. It's often these little acts of love and these unrecognized moments that are the most profound here. This is what Paul's driving at them to see. So when he's talking about loving these people who are giving you spiritual guidance, what he's suggesting is those, of, those who are serving faithfully, who are loving you, without being propped up on a stage, um, those are the ones I want you seeing 
Those are the ones I want you following and caring for. Those are the ones I want you imitating the way that you imitate me as I imitate Christ. So Paul then gives a list of uh, another. So again, he'll address them as brothers and sisters. And I want to go back to like Paul's using family language here. This sounds kind of religious to us. Like we've heard people say, like, this is my brother in Christ or my sister in Christ. Um, but I want to like, I want us to grab the profoundness of like, this is the first time you have people that were not related to one another, referring to each other as like brother and sister. What he is doing is he's trying to get them to see you are this family. So take care of one another, brothers and sisters. And then he gives what looks like a list of things. Like here's a, here's a list of moral things I want you doing. There's something deeper even here that Paul's saying. Uh, he says, for even if you had 10, uh, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, we urge you to warn those who are lazy. Okay, so what's he speaking about there? There was a group of people that had essentially in the Thessalonians church been convinced that Jesus was going to return any moment. And so they'd quit their jobs uh, and were sort of just kind of li- like kind of milking off everybody else. Uh, and they're kind of doing it in the spirit of like, I'm super, like, I'm waiting for Jesus any minute. So can you get me? Like, can you cover my sandwich? Like, because I haven't worked in three weeks. And so like, he's, he's, he's encouraging, like he's getting back, like he's, want, he's not wanting people to become uh, burdensome to, towards others. That's, that's what he's saying with lazy. All right. So it's, some of you are like, okay, well, great. I can call my brother after this and tell him, like, yeah, get your life. That's not really what Paul's getting at. He's speaking situationally to a group of people that were essentially had quit their jobs and then were sort of milking the system and weren't quite eager to get back into work. Um, so I wanted to address that one. But he says, encourage those who are timid. Take ken- tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to teach each other and to all people. Always be joyful. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you who listen to it belong to Christ Jesus. Another way that you could translate this is this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Then he says in verse 19, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Okay, here's what Paul says. Like how many of you ever heard like the command, like rejoice and be thankful always shows up a couple of different times. How many of you have found that impossible? Okay, so what Paul is getting at there is like he's not trying to like uh, just like get people to put on a happy face when life is hard. That's not what Paul's point is. Here's what Paul's point is. You now exist in this loving relationship with God. You are now united with Christ. Nothing and no one and no circumstances can ever steal that from you. That is true joy. That is true peace. It doesn't mean that your circumstances, like, you just got to put on a happy face. Like, he's not giving them this, like, directive, like, moral, religious duty. So, like, be happy even when you feel like being sad. When he says rejoice or be thankful, what he's driving at is, I want you to realize that because you are now united in Christ, nothing and no one can steal that from you. No circumstances, no amount of discouragement, no pain in your life will ultimately defeat God's purposes for you. Remember, he's writing to a group of people that are experiencing active persecution. Some of them are being killed. 
And so they're asking this question. And he's also, right, he's also had to deal with part of the reason he wrote this letter is because someone, a group of people had come in and said, hey, Jesus is coming back any minute, and he might have already come back, and you guys are way out here in Thessalonica. It was a small uh, kind of... Um, it was, a, uh, for lack of a better word, it was like an industrial town, right? It was a lot of like factory workers kind of, uh, so to speak. And it was kind of on an outburst. And so like basically there had been some people that started these rumors of like, Jesus has come back and he missed you guys. Like he just totally like, he forgot y'all were over here. And they're panicking over that. So what they're really doing in that moment is they're asking that question, wait, has God overlooked me? Like has his goodness left? Like has he forgotten that I'm here? And Paul wants to reassure them, this is the will of God in Christ. You are in Christ. Nothing and no circumstance will ever steal away God's goodness for you, God's plan for your life. And what he's wanting them to do is grab on to this deep down in their soul. So I, I think one of our, our biggest struggles, or maybe it's just mine, um, often with seeing and relating to and finding joy in the goodness of God is that I tend to be very circumstantial with my faith. If things are going well, I'm way more likely and way more apt to say, yeah, God's really good. If things are going poorly in my life or difficult, then I'm way more likely to say, I don't know, or feel it in my bones. Is God really good? Does God really see? Does God really care? And what Paul's trying to do is give them a kind of hope that goes below that so that their faith is not dependent on their circumstances. It's not dependent on, on what's happening to them. It's dependent on the hope that they have. It's dependent on who they are in, who they are united to. What Paul wants them to see is if not even death could overcome Jesus, you are united to that same kind of hope and that same kind of glory and that same kind of power and that same kind of love. Because this is why resurrection, as Paul writes about just previously, and this is so important, he wants them to see that death is the thing that none of us have control over, and yet it was not the thing that defeated Jesus. So all of the other things that you feel like you have no control over in your life cannot defeat you because you are in Christ. You are with him. You are united to him in a way that makes, like, that you are in, like, you cannot lose. As discouraging and as difficult as life is, you cannot lose because you are united to Christ. So he says, do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Do not scoff at prophecies, but test everything that is said. Hold on to what is good and stay away from every kind of evil. Okay, so um, this is really where I want to, I want to, like Paul gives, I think, the most beautiful picture of church, like the kind of hope that every single one of us needs in these few sentences that we just read. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Jesus says uh, in John 16, but in fact, it's best for me that I go away because if I don't, the advocate or the Holy Spirit, the word could be translated advocate, it could be translated counselor, it could be translated uh, comforter, won't come. 
If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Here's what Jesus just said. I want you to, like, I'm trying to help us grab this reality. Jesus just said, it is better for me to go so the Holy Spirit can come. I want you to think about those words for just a second. He's not like, he's not, Jesus isn't blowing smoke here. He's not like, he's not giving them false hope. This is at the end of like towards the crucifixion. And so he's not trying to be like, well, you know, so like we do this with my daughter all the time when we like deny her cookies before dinner. Um, Like we have to find like cheap kind of like quick ways to like comfort her. We're like, well, you'll get one after dinner or we'll watch Frozen for the 80th time this week. Like we offer like kind of false little comforts from the thing that she really wants. And so like, that's not what Jesus is doing here. Listen to his words. It is better for me that I go so the Holy Spirit can come. It is better for you for me to go so the Spirit can come. Okay, so we have a lot of confusion on what prophecy means. A lot of us think prophecy is uh, like seeing into the future. That does happen in the Bible. Like prophets do sometimes see into the future, but that's actually, that is not the most common type of prophecy. In fact, um, that's actually about 5% of your Old Testament prophecies were like uh, future looking in some kind of way. An overwhelming majority of your Old Testament prophecies or your prophets were people who heard from God. They had direct encounters with God. Like Moses being God's first prophet goes up to Mount Sinai, has this encounter with God and then comes down and tells everyone else about it. Here's what God said. That's where the Ten Commandments, that's where they got their Ten Commandments from. Here's God's will for you. That's what prophecy was. It was hearing from God in a direct kind of powerful way and then being able to share that with the other people of God. Here's the reality that Paul wants them to see. That power, that spirit, for those of you who are in Christ, is now available to all of you. So when he says, test everything, uh, don't scoff at prophecies, hold on to what is good, what he is telling the group of people here is you are now indwelled with the Spirit of God. It is working out things in your life, and you get to share that with one another. You get to participate in this reality with one another. As God works out what is good in your hearts. See, Paul goes back to everything is relational here. Because this is the reality that I think is, as a church in America in particular, I think we have completely fallen asleep to. But Paul wants them to see their greatest hope, their greatest hope is seeing the goodness of God as the Spirit works in and through one another. Okay? He, they, like As they learn to comfort one another, as they learn to care for one another, the spirit working in them is showing them who God is, his nature, his character, his goodness. They are learning this from one another. Okay, so this isn't me being kumbaya here. Uh, like, I know like this is, like sometimes when I talk about this, it's uh, like it's easy to feel like, oh, that's just like community. Like community is good. Community is good. I'm not knocking that. Again, don't hear me say what I'm not saying. But what Paul's just given here is is more than just, I want to teach y'all how to behave better with one another. That's, you know, my my daughter's third, you know, uh, kindergarten preschool teacher does that. They come together, they learn to share and say thank you and please be patient, take turns, those kinds of things. That's not what Paul's getting at. Paul's actually inviting them into a more beautiful reality, and it's this. For those of us who are following Jesus, 
the goodness of God, the Spirit of God is working in you. It is. It is working in each of you sitting in this room. It is working at you in your small groups. It is working with you like in your life. And we get to actually participate in that goodness. We get to see what God is doing in your life and it shows us things about who he is, his nature and his character. And so when Paul says, test everything, he's empowering, again, he's not speaking to direct offices. He's empowering everyone here. I want you to realize that you are now each other's comforters. You are now the presence of the loving God to one another. You now see the goodness of God being manifested in the way the Spirit is working in your hearts and in your lives. So share your lives with one another. That's how Paul starts this letter. Okay, th- this is why, um, so this is hard um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, people are unpredictable and scary and sometimes hurtful, right? So the work of the Spirit that's working isn't complete, which means there are going to be times where people are in tune with the Spirit's goodness and there are going to be other times where they are not. Right, so, so the first thing is like one of the reasons we're at, we apprehensively kind of jump into this truly, I think, as churches, uh, not, I'm not speaking just to our church, but I just think in church in general, is because it's scary and unpredictable. The Spirit working in our hearts um, really does a couple of things. One, it, it, we have to be like ready for it. We have to be in tune with it. You have to be in tune with what the Spirit's doing in my life, and I have to be in tune with what it's doing in your life, which requires, like, active participation in each other's lives. It requires me to know you well enough to know, like, to be able to see what is you and what's the work of the Spirit. Like, it requires me to pray for you and for you to pray for me. Like, it requires us to be involved intimately with one another. This is why going back to the very beginning when Paul's talking about honor those who lead with love, he's saying honor those who are are serving you in tune with what the Spirit is doing. Participate with them. This is where the evidence of the goodness of God is being manifested among you. So it's, 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 you know, it's, if you look at like what that means for us as a, as a community, here's what it means. Uh, I don't know, we have volunteers like Troy Mason who shows up every Sunday and does setup team. You may not realize that, but every Sunday, Troy's setting up the chairs that you guys sit in. We have Nicole and the kids team serving back there. They serve our little ones so well. And so it's easy to kind of just like drop them off and be like, good luck, here you go, I'll see you in, I'll see you in an hour. But like they, they serve behind the scenes. This is the way Tim and Allie and Jill volunteer on the worship team, like come in early, rehearse, like, like invite us into the, like the prayerful presence of God. It's the way Carly and the AV team serve, like without recognition. Like this is where Paul is saying, you are going to see the spirit of God evident. This is where you're going to see like the nature of Christ. It's in the washing of the feet, the things that we see is unremarkable. Right, and if you serve in some way, and I didn't mention your name, like it's not like there's just too many of us to not like. I'm I'm trying to grab, like I'm trying to help us see something here. And I don't want you to go unacknowledged. That's not my heart. But if I acknowledged everybody, like we wouldn't be able to go to brunch. Um, it would just take too long. 
but my heart here, like what Paul's trying to get them to see is like they are the hope of one another because Christ is in them. They are in Christ. Because so, so like we come to church with the eager expectation of somewhere in all of this that we might actually encounter God, right? Like that's our hope. And yes, I'm prayerful and hopeful that you'll hear it from my words, but I remain convinced, utterly convinced that the, the most like place that you will see and hear from God is in the love that you show one another, the way that you lead one another in love. Okay, so uh, there's, an, there's another group of people I think particularly that Paul uh, is talking about here, and it's our small group leaders. It's Adam and Alyssa, it's Nephi and Jennifer, it's Stuart and Genevieve, it's Emily and Jared. Small group leaders serve a church without like any kind of official office, and yet they love, right? They text you, they open up their homes to you. What Paul is saying is see these people and care for them. Uh, so, so we, like most of us in churches, particularly in the West, we see things as kind of a top-down. Uh, so like, I'm here, uh, and then everyone else, like other staff are here, Johnny and Nicole, uh, and then, you know, like we've got this kind of, like everybody kind of sees every, like flowing down. But Paul's wanting to do something different here. He's wanting to actually start from the bottom up. He's wanting to say, like, I want to empower all of you in love. Like, I don't want you to see leading in love as just the responsibility of a limited group of people. All of you are empowered by the Spirit of Christ, which dwells in you. Which means in some kind of way, for lack of a better way of saying it, you almost, you owe it to the people around you to show them like God working in your heart. Right? This is what Paul's saying is, I want you to like, if they're leading in love, I want you serving them in love. Like, I want this to go both ways. I don't want it to just be a top-down thing. I want you to meet them. Because Paul's heart, Paul's purpose for the church, he, you know, believe it or not, like, we have evidence that he did this in Acts, but, like, in most of Paul's letters, we don't actually see him appointing offices in the way that we think that, we kind of think of it. Um, he doesn't, not, not to say that he doesn't do that, because we see him doing that, but his primary concern often is for the spiritual health of the church as a whole, and the way that he sees that happening is each of you have been, you are now united in Christ because of the work of the Spirit, so that he sees often the foundation of love as a church builds as something that happens from the ground up, right? So we want healthy small groups. We do two things. Look, I want our small group leaders to be healthy, but also those individuals that are in that small group, like you also have a sacred, beautiful privilege. God is redeeming you, restoring you, forgiving you, showing you new things. Share that with your group. Take care of your leaders, right? Give Troy a high five for setting up the chairs, or I don't know, maybe high fives is love language or not, I don't know. But like what, 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 what I'm getting at is don't miss those who are serving in the ways that it's very easy to miss. And when we do that, what ends up happening is that we ourselves find ourselves empowered and in tune with what the Spirit's doing. Like this, this is a healthy church, by the way. Right? So the, the, the title of the sermon that I put on, on Facebook and YouTube is like, you don't go to church, you are the church. And yeah, there are over, like there are overseers of the church, staff, leaders that have been entrusted to care for it. Me, Johnny, Nicole, others, team leaders, our small group leaders. Yes, there's been an entrusting of care, but that entrusting of care also works from the bottom up. 
And so here, here's the thing is I don't ever want us to be a church that misses the beauty of how like life-changing and powerful washing feet can be. But the reality is everything in our world and the way that we define success, even the way that we define ministry success, is going to encourage us to miss it. And I'll, and I'll close with this as we close because that AC is getting really annoying. I don't know what's <laughs> happening there. Uh, it sounds like a lawnmower that can't start. Um, how many of you at any point in your life had a, like a hurtful or damaging word spoken to you that just carried on for a while? How many, like, in all those situations, does the person who spoke those words even, are they even, like, remotely aware of some of the impact that that, that might have had on you? Probably not. Maybe you got a chance to tell them, and maybe in humility they actually got a chance to ask for forgiveness, and maybe they did. But more likely than not, like, they have no idea. And I would be willing to venture that some of the most impactful moments of our lives are the ones that others who were involved in that impact don't even realize. Because it can work the other way, too. Something your mom said when you needed to hear it. Something your friend said when you needed to hear it. And you might have even been able to say, hey, remember when you said that thing? Thank you. That made a difference. But the reality is they don't sit with you day in and day out as that thing that they said, like, influences you, changes you, like, rewires the way that you think of yourself, helps you let go of shame or whatever it is. Just in the same way, like, negative comments may have taught you, like, wired shame deeply in you in ways that the person who spoke those words will never even realize. And this is, this is like, we keep wanting, like, the, like, life-changing moments in the spirit to look really sexy, right? Like, we want to, like, we want to recognize them and see them as something successful um, the way that we often in the world define success. But here's the thing. I think the reality is most of the way that the spirit will work in my life and yours and the ways that we'll be in tune with that with one another are the ways that will be completely easy to miss, you may not even realize it. And the reason I say that is because his wisdom, God's wisdom, is so much more significant than ours. And so as we learn to love people, we think we're kind of loving them in this way, but this little, to, uh, little unbeknownst to us, the Spirit's going to be doing his own work through us towards them. The Spirit think, sees things and knows things about them that you will never know, and vice versa. And so part of what Paul's wanting them to do is, I want you to be vessels with one another, like channels is a way to put it. Paul will use, actually kind of use this terminology in other places. This good spirit of the loving God, I want you to be like, a, like a, an avenue by which the spirit flows from you towards others in your life. This I'm absolutely convinced is the hope of the world. This is I'm absolutely convinced is the hope of church. We work really hard on Sunday mornings. We do. We get here early, we set up, like we work hard as a church to do things well, to do things professionally, to, um, to have a good programming for our children. But I'm absolutely convinced the hope of the world, the hope that each of you and I have, resides with the work of the Spirit in each of us as he loves and redeems and restores and forgives, as he cultivates and shapes us to be like him. And so my call and my plea is the same one to Paul's is let's be a church that in vulnerability shares that with one another. Love our leaders and by leaders love those who are serving. That's what we mean. Love one another. Love those who are struggling. Those who find themselves weak help give them courage. And Paul says don't stifle the Holy Spirit those prophets that heard directly from God, that spirit that they were listening to now resides in you.
you get to participate in this reality. Don't stifle it. Don't neglect it. Don't forget it because it's going to be the thing that carries you through when nothing else will. Let me pray for us as we close today. Father, we love you. Um, <clears throat> thank you for um, your goodness towards us, um, your mercy that you have on us. Father, wherever we are this morning, whether we're out traveling, um, watching on the live stream, um, or we're here in person this morning, Father, would you be present with us? Um, Father, I ask humbly um, and in great need of your spirit. I ask, I ask, I'm in great need of like seeing the way that your spirit works in the lives of, of our people. You're offering goodness, you're offering us your goodness and your gifts and your mercy and your redemption and your restoration through the way that you work in each of us. Through the work in my heart, through the work in the hearts of everybody here, would you show us how much we need one another? Would you show us how to love each other, Father? We need help. Have mercy on us. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.